Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. We've been hearing an awful lot about bots recently, mostly Russian bots. Following the Robert Mueller indictment of the 13 quote-unquote Russian trolls working for the Internet Research Agency, there's been an awful lot of talk about influence operations online. But how big is the Russian problem? How big of an influence are they actually having through these influence operations? Using Twitter accounts, sock puppets, or bot networks? There was an article that appeared on the Huffington Post on March 14th called How a Twitter Fight Over Bernie Sanders Revealed a Network of Fake Accounts by Paul Blumenthal. The article starts... When Russians at the Internet Research Agency interfered in U.S. politics, they created false online personas and fake political groups to amplify divisive messages that already had a homegrown American audience. It's not too far from what some U.S. political consultants are doing themselves. Take Solly Albright, a Democratic Party communications consultant who backed presidential candidate Hillary Clinton in 2016. Unsurprisingly, Albright is vocally opposed to President Donald Trump and a big supporter of the resistance to his administration. She is also one of the loudest, most divisive voices attacking Senator Bernie Sanders, Clinton's one-time Democratic primary opponent and his left-wing supporters. Well after the primary, Albright continues to claim that Sanders is a fraud, a liar, racist, and corrupt, among many other things. In one instance, she declared that the policy idea of free college, as promoted by Sanders, was racist, This provoked Sanders supporters to argue back. Trevor, a Sanders supporter who declined to provide his last name for fear of being doxxed, goes by at liking online on Twitter. Noticed a strange pattern of behavior when Albright responded to him. Her tweets addressing him were rapidly retweeted by the same series of accounts. This created a barrage of notifications, making it look as though there was an avalanche of opposition to everything he said. But as Trevor discovered, after an extensive amount of research that he posted online, these were not normal accounts. They appeared to be bots. Automated accounts masked as real people used to amplify a particular political message. Who is really pulling the strings, however, remains a mystery. And this is where I'll end this article. It continues on for a while. Um, But today I'm actually going to play for you an interview with Trevor, um, who goes by the name at liking online on Twitter, um, about the research that he did and some of the insight that he has into just how these bot systems work, um, how these political influence operations are working in terms of domestically generated ones, just his opinion on sort of the over-focus on Russia and Russiagate and Russian, you know, influence operations online. There were a couple of researchers that, uh, that studied this kind of thing, social networks and influence and stuff like that. And they kind of pooled their partial data sets together that had been uh, incidentally collecting some of these tweets from some of these accounts and so what NBC released was a data, database of about 200,000 tweets from 2015 through 2017. And there is, I think, I think when I checked, there was about 400 or so unique accounts um, and 200,000 tweets. But the thing is, is that we just have no idea like how complete the data set is. So it's always going to be impossible to quantify it unless unless Twitter open sources all of the the data from these deleted accounts. Yeah, because after deleting all of them, I mean, what are they... It's interesting that they would have not tried to preserve them in some way, you know, to view them. And I I guess I'm I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what is, you know, what is Twitter's actual role here? I still can't wrap my mind around the the fact that they sent that email out to various people. Yeah, that's... Um, that's uh, crazy. Because um, yeah, face- Facebook and, they, and Google didn't didn't do anything like that. You know, most of the stuff they've been doing is more behind the scenes. But that was a very public, you know, interfacing with their own users kind of thing for them to do. And 
Yeah, and I'm, I wonder, I wonder what uh, what pressure and motivation they had to to do that because at the end of the day, it didn't really do anything besides just whip up hysteria, you know, and way to to slander people who who you know saw a tweet from one of these accounts. And I'm, I'm I would assume that that email notification was tied to those 1300 accounts that they had released to Congress. But that's just my assumption. I mean, one of the things that stood out to me the most from some of the analysis you did was what we know of IRA linked Russian Twitter accounts versus what you found of ShareBlue uh, sock puppet accounts. I guess just describe what is, what is ShareBlue? How do we know what you know, how did we learn about that? Just explain why you've made this comparison in the first place. Okay. Um, well, I mean, the, the main purpose of my analysis and report was to, to highlight organized political influence campaigns uh, that are run domestically. Because, I mean, we, we've, all, we've been talking about the Russians doing essentially the same exact thing that that I exposed Share Blue to be doing, you know, making lots of fake accounts, usually more more than one account per person. Maybe I'll just give some background on on who David Brock, the the guy who founded Share Blue, what, what his his background is, because I think that that's pretty important to the story. So, yeah, uh, David Brock, he used to be a uh, Republican political operative. He made his name essentially uh, coining the nutty and slutty slander against uh, Anita Hill uh-huh. during Clarence Thomas's confirmation. So that's kind of how he made the name for himself in um, at least in the Republican operative space. And he was really a, a big thorn in the side for, for the Clinton administration and especially towards, uh, towards Hillary Clinton. And then, Oddly, in, I think it was 2001, I think it was 2001, he kind of had a, um, a come to Jesus moment where he wrote a, a book basically denouncing all of his right wing rat fuckery. And he, he ended up pledging his uh, allegiance to, to the Clintons. So um, I've heard rumors that on, in the Hillary Clinton 2008 campaign, he was responsible for the racist and incendiary attacks on Obama being from Kenya. If you remember that that one photo, yes, of, of Obama. course. So that originated from the Clinton campaign. I've heard that David Brock was behind that. He's one of the biggest slime balls in D.C. During the 2016 election, he managed to raise, or he they spent nine million dollars through this super PAC called Correct the Record. Uh, there's a bunch of stories on it, and he essentially was bragging to the press about how he could circumvent campaign finance laws about independent expenditures and coordination. So basically, instead of directly communicating with the Clinton campaign, they would make uh, internet posts and stuff so that it was all out in the public. I think that's essentially how um, he got around it, but he was very open about um, the method by which these campaign finance laws were uh, were uh, skirted around. Um, so yeah, so they 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 raised nine million dollars during the um, twenty sixteen election, and essentially, correct the record was was set up to push back against essentially push back against narratives that uh, that were critical of Hillary Clinton in the twenty sixteen election. That amounted to paid trolls going onto Reddit and Facebook, and essentially disenfranchising and um, gaslighting Democrat voters, um, Bernie supporters, um, and, and yeah, essentially just pushing back on, on any uh, narratives that, that didn't cast Hillary in a, in a positive light. Some of their correct the records funding comes from uh, their top funders. Four of the top funders are uh, massive billionaires. Essentially they, Correct the Record, um, and this organization called Blue Nation Review. Blue Nation Review is the, the predecessor to ShareBlue. And after after the election uh, ended, uh, Blue Nation Review kind of dissolved. 
and David Brock hired Peter Dow, amongst other people, to uh, to run this new organization called Share Blue. And in David Brock's own words, Share Blue was kind of modeled after being the Breitbart of the left. Another interesting thing about David Brock and Share Blue is after the, the 2016 primary, after all of their attacks on on Bernie Sanders, David Brock actually penned an open letter to Bernie Sanders claiming a truce and and pledging his allegiance to uh, to Senator Sanders. Of course, Senator Sanders did not take him up on that offer and uh, proceeded to call him uh, the scum of the earth. <laughs> so um, something that's kind of interesting about this research is um, if you look at the, the messages that are being pushed out behind the scenes, you know, they none of this was, was, was publicly um, disclosed by, by Share Blue, but you can see that um, if you look at which accounts were getting pumped for verified accounts, those, those ones are primarily pushing uh, anti-Trump narratives. And then it seems like there's a couple dozen troll accounts that are just seems like they're purposely made to, to attack uh, Bernie Sanders. And so, um, yeah, I think that there was a, uh, there was a story a little while ago about how uh, David Brock had raised another $40 million to fight Donald Trump. You know, it's a dark money organization. So on the face, they could say that they're using all this cash to, to actually fight Donald Trump. You know, it seems like Share Blue um, doesn't publish stories that um, are critical of Senator Sanders. But if you look at their journalists like Eric Boller and the other accounts that, that I found this uh, sock puppet network to be pushing, um, they they're all very anti-Bernie Sanders. I mean, and not even just anti-Bernie Sanders, but just uh, essentially capping for centrists. Yeah. And it makes sense because, I mean, it's, it's funded by four of the richest people, four of the richest families in the, in the country. Um, I think that they're, at one point I, I plotted out the aggregate year-to-date contributions and over half of their money is coming from four individuals that have massive private equity money, old school healthcare money. So, yeah. Yeah. David Brock is a very fascinating character to me because he just keeps popping up over and over again, you know, in some of the most bizarre circumstances. I mean, one of the most notable ones recently, I mean, it's not recently now, but I mean, his former, boyfriend James Alafontis of course is the um I believe the owner of Comet Pizza um so that was sort of an interesting right, yeah that's a funny coincidence I mean yeah that's another thing about this research is like the the responses that I've gotten um oh you've gotten some of those of, people yeah <laughs> yeah so the people like way down the rabbit hole um so they've they've surfaced and then the trolls that are likely paid by David Brock have also surfaced. Yeah. Um, and just recently in the last few days, um, some like some resistance moms have, uh, have been retweeting, retweeting my research. So that's also been funny to see. Interesting. Yeah. So some, some of these, some of these top billionaires, uh, Henry Laffer, um, of Renaissance technologies, same company that's run by Robert Mercer. He donated $500,000 to correct the record. Donald Sussman, five hundred thousand uh, dollars. Pat Stryker, uh, one of the top four billionaires in Colorado, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So yeah, it's the the list of the top donors is uh, kind of a who's who of um, big money in Democrat politics. And part of what you've shown through your research is that you know these these forces operating out of D.C. sort of for the resistance side. They have no problem with using basically sock puppet armies of of their own. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's what I found. So, I mean, maybe I can just give like a basic explanation of of um, of my research and how I for sure how I yeah. stumbled upon it. Please. So, um, so essentially, um, one day I was arguing on Twitter with uh, this person named Sally Albright. Um, she has in the past run um, 
social media operations for uh, candidates like Newt Gingrich in 2020, um, Republican governor in, uh, or I'm sorry, not 2020, uh, 2012, um, Republican governor of uh, Alabama in 2011, I believe. And of course, she also worked on Hillary's 2008 and 2016 campaigns. Um, so essentially, um, uh, there was a, a, a Twitter argument over whether uh, she was arguing that that free college, that offering free college was actually racist. How she got to that point was uh, kind of a mystery. Um, but going back and forth with her, pointing out how inane a statement like that is, that, that is, um, you know, later that, that night, I was bombarded with hundreds and hundreds of notifications of every single one of her, her responses to me getting retweeted by like 50 or so people. So, oh wow, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're on Twitter, you usually don't go through comments and uh, like 40 something level deep comment threads to, to retweet replies. So I thought that that was of course odd at first. Cause they don't, they don't, um, they don't show up. Uh, usually when you're replying to someone, they don't show up on someone's main feed. So that's right. It almost so seems like artificial on its face. Troll. Yeah. So that's, so, so it seemed like there were like 50, 50 accounts that were trolling through, um, all of the responses and selectively, um, retweeting all of, all of her. So that, that was weird. So, um, I wanted to take a look at it. Um, and I noticed that one of the, accounts that was consistently uh, retweeting her was this account called Druid City Media, which was, uh, um, I did a Google search for it and uh, it uh, popped up as Sally Albright's PR firm, essentially, that she had set up in uh, 2012, you know, knowing that she's essentially, you know, in marketing for, for political campaigns, it didn't really surprise me that that's that that was a uh, technique that they're using. I mean, that's all of what marketing is these days is, you know, fake engagement and stuff like that. So it was not surprising to me to see that her marketing account was boosting her after, after, um, after taking inventory of all of these accounts that um, were specific, that were uh, retweeting her, I essentially um, set up, um, I used a program called Gephi that makes uh, network visualizations. And I just sat on top of these accounts for like a week, uh, monitoring all of their retweet activity. Um, and it was very clear that the quarter of all of their retweets were retweets of Sally Albright. There is also, they also highly favored retweeting uh, people associated with ShareBlue and ShareBlue itself. If you if you look at some of these sock puppet accounts, they essentially they only retweet. They never reply to anything, and they they uh, they very rarely post any original content. So what I did was I looked at these accounts and and went back to when they first or when they when they last re, when they last tweeted original content, and on every single one of the accounts, the last. Um, the last couple dozen or so tweets was were just direct links to um, to share blue articles, um, and something that was noteworthy about all of these uh, these tweets was that they were all made using this program called Buffer, and Buffer is a Twitter automation software where essentially it allows you to sign into up to 150 accounts at once. And uh, you install a web extension, and it places an extra button on your Twitter interface when you're browsing it. And rather than pressing the retweet button, you just press the buffer button, and you can select up to all of your 150 accounts and retweet from those accounts all at once. And now something to go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to stop you right there because just as a layman, so I, I don't have any programming knowledge i'm I, I understand the general concept of what you're explaining to me the part that i'm confused about is wouldn't twitter official or just like their own software be able to 
put a stop to this kind of automated like sock puppeting you know where you can like i remember they used to have tools for facebook for example like back in the day that you could like add like a thousand friend friend requests at once and message you know thousands of people at once in a mass message and they no longer allow that like facebook figured out a way to stop you know but maybe actually maybe i'm wrong maybe there's software now that where you can still do that with facebook but I'm I guess it's I'm surprised that Twitter even allows this to happen and maybe you could explain you know just a little bit like how that's still allowed to happen and and is that just is that actually not even against their terms of service like I would assume it is but is it No so it's not against their terms of service and Okay fascinating uh, yeah that's that's interesting okay So uh, automated likes are against their term their automation rules but um, automated retweeting, it has not been historically. Now, Interesting. Um, okay. there's, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Twitter doesn't really have any incentive to put a stop to any of this because, I mean, it, it drives their, uh, their engagement metrics. So their engagement metrics don't really care whether or not it's a, a bot or a human essentially behind the behind the tweets right so um you know 100 retweets from a human isn't necessarily better than 100 retweets from a bot especially if those bots have thousands and thousands of followers like all of these sock puppets do so i mean from like a marketing perspective and you know from twitter's business angle i just don't really see how I just don't really see that there's there's too much incentive for them to put a stop to it, and it's not like that it's technically impossible to do it. So, in Twitter's API, I can actually see where the source of the the tweet is coming from. So, like if you were to tweet with your iPhone, I could see that, or if I were to tweet with my Android, I could see that. Likewise with the web client and so on and so forth. Um, so all of these, all of these sock puppets, all of their tweets um, originate from uh, the buffer client, which is just kind of a dead giveaway to the fact that it's that it's been automated. But yeah, no, I, I don't really see that uh, Twitter has any motivation to do this because it, it inflates their their numbers and you know their clients uh, rely on those uh, those uh, artificially inflated engagement numbers. I think that I heard some statistic that, you know, like 40% or something of, uh, of all of Twitter is just, uh, automated. That's really, that's kind of disturbing. It's also fascinating, but it, it makes a lot of sense. There the, the best evidence of the fact that Sally Albright was using sock puppets was that she, back in 2017, she was actually reaching out to uh, buffer tech support just openly on Twitter and um, <laughs> sent out a sent out a screenshot of her uh, buffer extension opened and signed into, you know, several dozen accounts at once. Wow! And um, I just looked through looked at that screenshot, and I uh, I could match up like six or so of these accounts to the profile pictures that she was using on these sock puppets. So that that was kind of the the nail in the coffin for. Um, it was, I mean, that was enough evidence. That was all the evidence that. That I that I needed. Um, another funny note about not funny and disturbing note about um, about th uh, their sock puppet use is that um, they essentially have. I've now it's about uh, eight or ten accounts. I just do, I reverse image searched the avatars on all of them, and about um, about ten of them are just clearly ripped from the internet. So I mean, there's pictures of. Uh, a, a model uh, from pictures from dating websites, um, an Olympic uh, figure skater from Spain was one of them, and she was she was just in the Olympics. And uh, I tagged her, and I uh, I asked whether or not she had given Cher Blue or Sally Albert permission to use her image to to push their uh, political narrative, and she responded saying no. And then the more disturbingly, there's uh, there's two two accounts that are using um, photos from people who uh, have been killed by uh, police. A librarian from wow. from Florida in 2016. I don't know if you remember this story, but there's a police training drill 
and uh, an elderly elderly woman um, was uh, shot and killed accidentally. And there's a another um, image of a uh, black woman who uh, was shot and killed just last year. So it's it's kind. Of, I don't know whether what? or not um, whoever is running the accounts were the people that um, that found those images. Um, or whether or not they, you know, they came like that when they, when they, when the accounts were purchased, because you can, you can buy Twitter accounts online for anywhere from three to thirty dollars based on, you know, the age of the accounts and stuff. So, so I don't, I don't know whether or not, um, you know, those images were were lifted but by you, Sally Albright or someone at Sheriff Blue, but I mean they were using them. So, but just this concept. So I've heard. And I'm sure most people have heard of the idea of buying followers. You know, um, you can you can get, you can purchase a lot of you know followers. A lot of them are sock puppets. Sometimes they're not necessarily sock puppets, but you know you can artificially inflate your follower account. But what you're saying is that you can also purchase, um, like Twitter accounts to use for yep. the purpose of sock pu- puppeting and the, and the value actually goes up depending on how long they've been there, so they can appear. I'm assuming more real. You know, if they've been on there exactly. since like 2014, wouldn't the first thing that comes to your mind wouldn't be this is a sock puppet. What you're describing is interesting because it's not, it's definitely not exclusive to uh, the Russians or to the, you know, DNC resistance people. I mean, this is a very common um, tactic that's used by, by so many different political operators, um, like even for example, Julian Assange uh, recently, I think it was in that Intercept article in those leaked chats, was explaining, and I don't know if it was him actually using the WikiLeaks Twitter, but he was explaining to somebody that you should use a blonde, good-looking avatar, you know, and go tweet this with that, or open up some sock. I don't know if he was actually encouraging to open up sock puppets. But he was essentially I saying, he was. yeah, tweeting from you know a, a fake, good-looking female avatar as opposed to your actual account would get it more traction. And Jim Hoft, um, who runs the Gateway Pundit, I mean, I can't prove it because I don't, you know, I don't have the tools or the skills or the access. But I've, you know, I've caught him what appears to be using a sock puppet account at least three times to run a headline, and then just he just emolates and deletes the sock puppet after he gets that headline out there. Um, yeah, I've heard of them doing that as well. And, yeah, and they're so that obvious. Source for a story or something. Exactly. Yeah. One example. I mean, the first one I remember seeing was there was somebody beheaded, I think, in the Midwest somewhere. And, you know, their their site was trying to spin it as, you know, an ISIS terrorist attack. And they had a, a fake sock puppet guy saying, I was at the police press conference and all these Muslims at the press conference started chanting Allahu Akbar. You know, the only source was a Twitter account. But of course, the Twitter account reverse image lookup, it's a stock photo of some redneck and the Twitter account disappears within 24 hours. It's not suspended. It's self-deleted. Um, right. So I'd imagine, just based on that, that that happens constantly. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I can't I can't prove this either, but I mean, all of these David Brock trolls were around during the 2016 election, and I'm sure you, you remember the, the Bernie bro narrative. I mean, it's so easy to, to manufacture a story. You could essentially, you know, start a, an argument with yourself online and claim that, the other that yourself that you are being sexist or whatever um and there you go you have a, a bernie bro story you know and even um, even some of um milo's milo i don't i don't really know how to pronounce his name but even some of his uh, someone showed that he was actually some of his original big twitter blowouts were with himself um that he would generate controversy by having sock puppets attack him um online that's amazing um, and this was like years and years ago, you know, before he was even famous. So, um, yeah, I mean, so I guess let's move to the topic of, you know, this idea that what Ru- when Russia is doing this, that it's really harmful and that it's actually sort of throwing our entire democratic system off balance. Um, and, and just the idea of that, I mean, even, even when you look at the amount of money they've spent, um, you know, the amount of sock puppets, you know, Twitter claims to have found of them. I think the amount you said was 1300 and, you know, the Alliance for securing democracy using only 
what they claim is 600 Twitter accounts that are either, I don't know if they're actually saying they're Russian bots or they're just like Russian influencer. I don't even, I don't even, I don't even think that they, on their, on their methods page, they, they say that they, that they don't want to reveal the accounts that they're uh, that they're monitoring because they don't want to get into individual debates about whether or not specific accounts are linked to Russians. So they even specifically say on their methods that these might not even be Russian people. They might just might just be, you know, right wingers or um, pro Trump people in the U S that just happen to be, you know, amplifying the same messages that are coming out of the Kremlin. And it's, uh, there's there, there's no there's no methodology for for how these accounts are followed. We don't know which ones they are, um, and and maybe I can give you um, like a little anecdote that would help illustrate just how um, insane it is to, to take some a, a group like Securing Democracy that doesn't disclose um, the accounts they monitor, taking that taking them at face value is just is just ridiculous to me. So. Um, so, so yesterday, um, a, a comedian named um, Jen Kirk, Kirkman, um, my favorite, massive, uh, <laughs> massive anti-Bernie person, um, <clears throat> famously said uh, that he should fuck a, fuck himself with a chainsaw and maybe, um, maybe his tax returns would f- fall out of his bowels or something. So yeah, uh, really uh, edgy, lo- lovely Twitter <laughs> personality. Um, so uh, she decided to do her own. Um, decided to go on a little Russian uh, Twitter troll hunt yesterday, and um, she um, apparently name searches Bernie Sanders to stay up on top of all of the, uh, the Russia amplifying of Senator Sanders and. She um, she stumbled upon um, a bunch of spam articles or spam tweets from um, a couple hundred different accounts, and the um, the tweet essentially was uh, talking about uh, Senator Sanders' bipartisan bill to uh, to stop the uh, to stop to uh, halt our our funding of Saudis um, for their uh, their atrocities in Yemen. So that was the the story, and uh, Jen had a, a minor meltdown and was screenshotting all of these uh, accounts, tweeting out the exact same story about um, about this new bill, and she um, she claimed without any evidence at all that this is the the work of the the Russians boosting Bernie Sanders, and there's something malicious here um, beyond <laughs> just. Uh, farming pay-per-click revenue. So, I mean, if, if she had bothered to just dig in a little bit, she would have seen that those same exact accounts also promoted Hillary Clinton when she tweeted about the Women's March a month ago. Yep. And she would have also seen that their most previous, their previous tweet was about um, condemning the white supremacist teacher um, that had the, the podcast in, in Florida. So um, if you looked at all of these accounts, which they're, they're now suspended, those blue checks on Twitter really get a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of sway in, um, in how Twitter reacts to uh, controversy. Um, so all of those accounts were now deleted. But if you, if you looked at them, they were essentially all um, pro-Democrat. You know, there, there was... Uh, there is nothing that indicated um, anything pro-Trump, um, and I, I've seen others on Twitter. They essentially end up at the same conclusion that that all of these accounts um, they seem less like a political influence campaign and just more simply a uh, a spam network to um, to farm pay-per-click revenue. So, I mean, just on on the face, it's just. If you took a, a one second to, to dig into it, you could see that that's just that, that what you claimed it was, it's just it couldn't be further from the truth. So the problem with um, securing democracy, not showing their work, is that they they could literally be running their own sock puppet network that tweets out articles that they uh, think fit their narrative. So it, it, it's it's just really astounding that um, that uh, journalists are are taking 
um, something like that that seriously. That you know, when they don't show their work, it's there's no way to independently verify um, what they're saying is actually true. Well, yeah, I mean, it's you know, and the players that are involved in it, of course, are a mixture of actual you know Iraq War architects and sort of neoliberal intelligence insiders or people who were you know part of the Obama administration in in some form um so right the, just, the guy that drafted the Patriot Act he's he's like he's the guy that, that runs it right I forget what his name is well the guy who drafted the Patriot Act was named Viet Din so he might be involved in it but I know I mean there's there's Michael Shurtoff from the Bush administration there's Bill Crystal, of course. There's Mike Morell, former CIA Obama uh, um, CIA director under Obama. There's Jake Sullivan, which was Hillary Clinton's right hand man when she was Secretary of State. Um, and the list goes on. I mean, Michael McFall, you know, former ambassador to Russia. I mean, pretty much all the main sort of people who have been driving or who've been pushing sort of this RussiaGate narrative from the beginning. Um, and what I thought was most, I don't know if you checked out this recent interview of theirs for Politico, where it was Laura Rosenberger and Jamie Fly from the Alliance for Securing Democracy um, doing a, a very lengthy interview with this Politico host. And what's interesting is you brought up this disclaimer that they have on their website saying like, well, we don't, we're not sure if these are actual like Kremlin accounts. They make, they actually make a point to not, you know, to, to, to have an out for themselves um, in that regard. And then what I found really interesting in this interview is they also say that they're not trying to make the argument at all that the Kremlin or Russia had any effect on the election or that Trump is colluding with the Kremlin or Russia. All they're saying is that there are ongoing Russian influence operations happening all the time. And I thought that was very interesting because it's... I guess as far as I'm concerned, this is sort of where this has been leading this whole time. This idea that, you know, that these Russian influence operations are the number one threat that we're facing somehow right now. Um, and, you know, I guess if Mueller doesn't end up coming out with any actual indictments showing collusion with Russia, then this is sort of what we're, we're going to be stuck with for the indefinite future. I don't know, just, I mean, just what's your opinion on on just where, where that, where it lands now that it's seems like it's all about, and it's all going to just be about this idea of Russian meddling and influence operations now. Right. Well, I think that, um, that, I mean, more than anything else, I, I really think that it's, uh, it's an indictment of our, our own democracy that, you know, it, it could be that easily subverted. A couple Russian trolls could subvert our, uh, our whole political system is just, um, it, it's, it's sad if, if that indeed is um, what's going on. And um, I think that it's more of an indictment of, uh, of our politics. So, yeah, I, I think that the, the whole, um, you know, all of the hand-wringing about these uh, Russian bots subverting our democracy is more of an indictment of our democracy than these Russian bots. I think that's kind of like the the starting point that I, that I take with it. And, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. It doesn't really seem like there's really anything else that's coming from the, uh, from the mainstream media. Um, you know, they're claiming that this is the equivalent of a, a cyber nine 11. And I mean, if you, if you take the logical steps from where that is, I mean, it would demand retaliation. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you that, that it doesn't really seem like there's, um, there's too much. I mean, it seems like that, um, that's, that's essentially the, the whole, um, the whole front of this whole, um, Russia subverting our democracy. It all comes down to these trolls, right? Or just, or just influence operations in general, which is why. I guess what fascinates me is they, they kind of leave, you know, the whole Russian media angle kind of to the wayside, like, like RT, there's no, you know, there's no question as to RT's what, you know, who's funding them, what they're about, um, that's in the name. So that's interesting to me because it's like, that was never, you know, the way that the U S government looked at that for years and years is they tried to marginalize these 
Russian media operations as if they were just completely insignificant. But all of a sudden now it's like, no, it's all about these Russian influence operations. They're so dangerous, you know? Um, but, but I mean, as you said, I think what you just said is the most important point of all actually is that it really does speak to the frailty of this idea that we are, we are a country with a functioning democracy and that we actually value sort of this idea of the first amendment and free speech. So essentially what they're saying, if you really boil it down is that our, our democracy and the structure that we have cannot withstand, um, you know, these low budget Russian influence operations. Um, and that's very shocking that they're coming out. If, I mean, cause if you really deduce what they're saying, that's kind of, that's the sort of the hidden meaning of it. And that's quite surprising. They would be, it almost to me is a scorched earth approach. Um, what, the way that they're framing this. Um, and I guess <laughs> just in terms of the, where we're left now with this and like just the idea that Mueller even indicted, you know, these 13 Russians from the internet research agency um, is very telling to me. And I guess, you know, what is your opinion on that indictment and maybe go into, you know, what that actual influence operation was and how, how do we know the proportions of, that influence operation compared to, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of other influence operations bombarding us on a daily basis, either from, you know, even if it's just from the neoliberal resistance people or just even from corporations. Um, why is it, you know, why is this argument only being had in a vacuum where it's like, and, and I guess maybe, the, you know, is, is that because it wouldn't function in the context of this larger idea of influence operations? Does it have to be had in a vacuum to make, make it seem like it's true? I just threw a lot of stuff out to you, so feel, feel free to... Yeah, so it, it seems kind of like a, a crux of their argument to only treat this in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's just kind of absurd that, that you wouldn't look at um, you know other online political influence campaigns um if if we're going to be looking at these russians because at the end of the day i don't think that anyone would deny that you know people like mercer um and parscale trump's social media ad guy i i don't think that anyone would say that um the russians can you know hold a candle to to any of these massive you know billion dollar operations i think that the that the estimate for how much the the internet research agency, a private company in Russia was spending was something like a million dollars per month. And when you look at the, um, the Clinton and Trump campaigns, there's billions of dollars spent and a lot of that goes to TV advertising. Um, but the idea that they're, they're not doing the exact same thing online is, uh, I think it's just a very short sighted, and uh, essentialist way of way of looking at it, and you know, I, I've I've been like I've been wondering why why it's been treated in such a vacuum. You know, I, I don't think that the that the you know the consultant class they depend on this kind of revenue. So um, you know, they get paid to essentially be uh, PR firms to spread this spread astroturf in political campaign operations. And, you know, I've gotten into tussles on, on Twitter and essentially I've, I've gotten it out of them. Like, I mean, the, the evidence that I put together that share blue is essentially doing the same thing as Russia. The, um, the centrist go-to talking point is, well, they're Americans They're They should be allowed to do that. But because huh. these posts were made in Russia, um, that's inherently dangerous to our democracy. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, all of these uh, these political influence oper operations, you know, they're they're funded by some of the biggest multinational money, you know, that exists. So even the the foreign versus domestic argument or or red line gets blurred when when you know uh, Renaissance Technologies. Um, of which uh, 
Laffer, the uh, billionaire contributor to Correct the Record, you know, Renaissance Technologies has $700 million in Exxon, you know, so they obviously have foreign interests, right? So I, I, I just think that people are taking a very short-sighted, uh, myopic look at this. You know, it's not it's not just the, the, the Russian influence or the Russian interests aren't the only ones. And I don't know, in, in my opinion, I... I I think that uh, having Exxon do political influence campaigns uh, could be more damaging than um, than the Russian state, even though uh, you know Russia is a, a petro state as well. Um, you could argue that Exxon is essentially a, a petro state. So, so yeah, I think that um, that the focus of it of this political organized political influence campaign is just solely focusing on Russia is just uh, is not the way to go. There's a really good um, article on the uh, Harvard Law blog about the Honest Ads Act um, that was proposed last year. So essentially, all of the um, all political spending on online ads, essentially, there's no regulations for um, for how those need to be disclosed. So um, so this Honest Ads Act would essentially mandate that there's a disclaimer on. Uh, on you know paid political speech online makes the it makes the uh the distinction between paid and unpaid political speech and it's really the the only way to go about it so that grassroots activism um people that are generally genuinely you know communicating about a political issue online that are not getting paid don't need to disclose you know that they're working for somebody, but for for paid political speech, the Honest Ads Act would make it so that there needs to be a disclaimer on the on whatever ads or even like sock puppet accounts and stuff like that. Um, the legal definitions are a little bit shaky, and they could be um, strengthened further. But um, it's a, it would be a good place to start. Another uh, thing that the act tries to do is to make a, a database publicly available database of all political uh, can uh, paid political speech online, which should also be very helpful. Um, and then the, this article, I'll find the name of the, of the author, but the author goes through and out and kind of highlights the, the complexity to this issue because um, right now the, the bill basically says like, if you are paying the, you need to disclose um, paid political speech to the platform that you're using. So um, if you're making like an ad buy or something directly to Twitter, then uh, Twitter would need to disclaim that um, where that money is coming from. But the, the issue with free to use platforms is that there's all of these, you know, third parties that uh, campaigns use like, you know, other PR firms and stuff that aren't Twitter. So the, there's kind of a problem of uh, tw Twitter is just being the messenger here. So the, the, the act doesn't really explicitly say that these third parties are mandated to hand over all of the information to someone like Twitter in order to make, to make that disclaimer and to, uh, to allow that uh, piece of paid political speech to be entered into the into the database. Yochai uh, Benkler is the name of the uh, author of this um, two-part blog post on uh, election advertising disclosure. So, I mean, that's kind of like the most thought-out, practical analysis of uh, kind of where we are now with paid uh, political speech and astroturfing and, and the use of bots and stuff. Um, online. So I think that's a, a pretty good place to start if you're interested in this kind of thing. Yeah, I highly recommend everybody check out that. It's a two-parter, right? The, yeah, the so article. It, talks, it, introduce, it introduces the Honest Ads Act in the first part and how that, uh, you know, would, uh, it's a step in the right direction. And the second part kind of outlines the complexities of, uh, of how the law could deal with um, sock puppet and uh, astroturf uh, bot campaigns just because the advertising isn't done directly on the on the platform it's done off the platform um, and the yeah and the law essentially needs to be uh, would need to make like explicit in the language 
um, to make sure that that political paid political speech um, gets disclaimed. I guess for me, it just raises this question of if this is so obvious just by looking at even these small data sets that Russia's effect, you know, compared to all this other stuff, potentially negligible, um, then I'm wondering if, if a lot of these people are just cynically involved in this and know that it's bullshit. And that, right. you know, and that's, that's, you know, so I guess that question has to be asked because how many of these, these people, especially like the Alliance for Securing Democracy, how many of those people genuinely believe that this is a seriously dangerous thing that's happening and that needs to be addressed? Or is it just, you know, a perfect opportunity for them to just push ahead this, you know, this, this, uh, this, this goal that they've had for quite a while, you know, at least since 2014 of raising the stakes with Putin, just in terms of the, their, our footing towards them. Um, you know, and it ultimately it doesn't matter how dangerous it is. It just sort of gives them the opportunity to do that and make it seem valid. Um, because it, apparently the, the public wasn't convinced that, you know, we needed to raise the stakes in Ukraine and Syria enough to actually start a hot war with Russia. So, but, you know, and then again, but Trump is actually sending offensive weapons to Ukraine now. Um, so they're getting their way uh, kind of on both sides. You know, they're actually getting Trump to do things that Obama wasn't even willing to do with Russia. And then on the other hand, this just keeps this train keeps moving along um, in terms of this idea of Russian meddling. And even, you know, as I said, the Alliance for Securing Democracy has already abandoned the idea that this actually doesn't have anything to do with Trump. They don't even want people to worry about that part of the equation because to them, Russian meddling is a serious danger that requires an entire think tank, you know, dedicated to it. Um, right. Well, I think that it just it just goes to show that, you know, that they're not confident that their that their work would be bought by the public. Otherwise, they would release the data on it. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I made a plot comparing the tweet frequency of the, uh, of the IRA database that, that NBC released with uh, the tweets that I collected from Share Blue. And at the peak of the 2016 election, the highest tweet frequency per day was 4,000 tweets in a single day. And now this is, it's an incomplete data set, so the comparison isn't perfect. But um, the tweet frequency from these shared blue sock puppets that I found was uh, it just a it averaged 4,000 tweets per day. So there is one day out of that entire data set that reached 4,000 for the IRA tweets. And shared blue is regularly doing that every single day uh, with peaks up to eight or 10,000 per day. So, I mean, the volume um, comparison between that partial data set and from what I found um, related to shared blue is it's uh, it's, it's just on a different order of magnitude. So if they were confident that this Russian meddling thing was a, a huge problem, they would they would release the numbers, you know, and not just the number of tweets per day, but also um, if they're a think tank, they have resources to uh, to analyze the type of engagement that all those tweets are getting. You know, how many followers um, do these accounts have? What's how many retweets? How many likes? Are, uh, is their content netting? You know, because if they're if they're just tweeting out into the out into a uh, into outer space, you know, no one's it's not going to have an effect on anyone. So they, I, I think that if we're if they're going to want to be taken seriously, they, they they need to to show their work. And the fact that they haven't in over a year, I think, just kind of explains it. Um, it just goes to show that they uh, that they that they're not confident and that it would be believed. Otherwise they would do it. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, which also makes it even more troubling that so many journalists um, and outlets are just lapping this stuff up and re and repeating it. I mean, I don't remember when it was, but I think it was maybe over a month ago. If you just search in Google news, the Alliance for securing democracy, the amount of results that come up, you know, that are citing it as a credible source is really, really disturbing. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of, of hits. Um, so I really hope that people, you know, there's more scrutiny against the Alliance for Securing Democracy for what they're trying to say. But I mean, it seems like the pushback is coming, is just not coming fast and furious enough. I mean, there's people like you, 
There's even people like Adrian Chen and Masha Gessen who are now having buyer's remorse, I would describe, for contributing to this wave of hysteria originally, and now they're regretting sort of the role that they played, which I kind of commend them for, but at the same time, I'm a little bit like, well, where were you guys two years ago kind of thing? Um, so, you know, and then even people like Miriam Elder, who was a straight up, you know, kind of State Department lackey reporter for BuzzFeed for years, is even now writing critical pieces about the Alliance for Securing Democracy. There, so there does seem to be some pushback. Um, and I'm really glad that, you know, people like you are out there actually analyzing some of these data sets and pushing back. Um, but I guess, in, in like, just to leave maybe the people out there listening with some hope, um, do you see any silver lining to this? I mean, the fact that they haven't revealed any of their data, is that sort of, you know, the silver lining that they really don't have the evidence maybe, and then maybe that'll be revealed eventually. Do you see any positive coming out of this right now? Well, I think that, uh, that the, the, the fact, the fact that they don't open source their, uh, their methods and don't release any data just kind of speaks to how weak of a position they're holding. And I think that if there are competent journalists, I think that that should, get exposed eventually. I just did a Twitter search for Hamilton 68 and the top result was uh, Adam H. Johnson's comment that it, that the six, the Hamilton dashboard um, almost exactly mirrors the, the post nine 11 color coded Homeland security advisory. So <laughs> when it jumps from yellow to, to orange, you know, <laughs> cite your sources, right? Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Um, Again, Michael Chertoff is actually, it sits on the board. So maybe, Maybe that's uh, intentional. I mean, yeah. I think Tom Ridge was actually the guy who was in charge when that color code was put up. But Michael, I mean, that's that's just creepy. I mean, I, there's really no other way to describe it. I mean, it, it, it's kind of the perfect analogy for it, though, right? It really is, yeah. I mean, the, they're really playing with fire, you know, by, by describing this as a cyber 9-11. Um, and... Uh, Let's just hope there are more sane forces in, in, in this blob, you know, in D.C. who, who, who prevail and actually, like, stand up um, and, and speak out against it. So I guess that's really the only hope um, because, yeah, I agree that they, they obviously don't really have anything and that this is kind of smoke and mirrors. Um, and I just hope more people see that over time. Um, so yeah. keep doing what you're doing and... You know, we'll we'll try to spread your information around as best as we can. And um, you know, are there any other resources out there that you feel that people should be paying attention to? Um, any journalists or um, or specific stories that you recommend people should check out? Um, well, I definitely recommend the um, the blog post um, on a Harvard Law blog about the um, the uh the honest ads act i think that legislatively that's probably the only way to tackle it um but i think that other journalists um who have been kind of pushing in the right direction on this uh people like adam h johnson sam Sachs, yeah people like you um i think that uh at least what, what i've seen um since releasing my my research i, I think that i've probably changed a couple minds and i think that you know if, if we're gonna take um the alliance for securing democracy seriously we should also be looking at the that the inverse of um you know what they're pushing so let's look at the coordinated political campaigns that are uh, are run domestically um to show that like what they're talking about is real but it's a it's a matter of scale and um I think if they released all of their data, we would see that um, that it's that it's likely not um, even on the the same order of magnitude. So I think that there's there's plenty more work to be done um, uncovering other um, you know astroturfing campaigns in the United States. You know, Share Blue is just just one dark money organization, but um, yeah, you can be sure that there's that there's more um, other places. Yeah, and if anyone wants to. Uh, reach out to me if they if they think that they um, if they think that they're you know catch a trail of some kind of uh, astroturfing campaign. Um, I can hook you up with the tools that you need to uh, to monitor these accounts. Um, they're all free and open source. Um, yeah, I'm planning on um, making a repository of the 
of some of the code that I use for, for analysis so that, um, so that other people could uh, get involved in trying to break down these, uh, these fake narratives that are being pushed. Everybody can, can check out some of your work right now at, um, on Twitter at liking online. And do you have a website or anything you want people to go to? Or is that Twitter the best um, place to go for now? Twitter is the best place to go for now. Um, I did a, you can find my report on um, the share blue astroturfing. Um, if you go to uh, share blue astroturf dot netlify, N E T L I F Y dot com, share blue astroturf dot netlify dot com. And it's just a little uh, blog post with a, with a quick analysis of um, of my original findings and you know how how I found the uh, the share blue astroturf network. Great. Well, everybody should check that out, and we will put a link in the uh, in the show notes to um, to your Twitter account and to that Harvard Law blog uh, post and your um, blog as well. So, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for listening to Media Roots Radio. Please consider donating on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. You can donate any increment you would like. We very much appreciate your support. Thank you. <laughs>